2: and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal
1: of Accurate Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte, for our guest today. Please welcome Justin Schubro.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much, Justin. You're president of the National Civic Art Society, a nonprofit organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. Justin. Can you share with us some early inspiration, if you will, you know, kind of uh, ideas that you'd like to, you know, how you became what you became, and if you can f- recall as far back as you can, to share it with us.
3: Sure. I mean, my, my interest in architecture, um, conscious interest in architecture, I think, began late in life, in my 20s, but I do have an early memory of the brutalist public library near where I grew up outside Baltimore. And I just hated that building. I hated it. And as I think we'll discuss, you know, I'm a pretty strong opponent to modernism and architecture, but I had that just feeling that there was something wrong and unpleasant about the place. And now I think I can put my finger on why it is true that in fourth grade, we were asked to, you know, fill out a piece of paper for a time capsule in which we were supposed to say what we wanted to be when we grew up. Oh. And I did write down architect. <laughs> I think I was inspired to write that um, from having uh, spent some time with a cousin of mine in Washington, D.C. He was older than me. I think he was in maybe high school at the time. And I just remember traveling around the city and he was pointing out various aspects of the architecture of the classical architecture you know showing me the difference between a doric ionic and corinthian column and that's the earliest memory i have of consciously thinking about architecture now time passes and i was very lucky to go to columbia university for college which is this incredible neo renaissance campus and while in college, I gave tours. And as part of the tours, we talked about the architecture of the buildings, the campus is by Mead, and White, as, as many people might know. And it was also then that I, you know, that, that required me to, to learn something about architecture. But then later, after college, I went to get a PhD in philosophy. And while studying philosophy, I started to come across some philosophers who wrote about architecture. And its role in civilization, how it's a mirror in which the culture sees itself, mm-hmm. and I thought I started to see how architecture embodies ideas, and I started to learn about you know the intellectual history of architecture, and took particular interest in what happened to architecture in the 20th century, and so then you know I started learning more and more about architecture, really just from reading a lot, and thank heavens for the internet since. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess back in the day, what I would have had to do is you know go to the library and go get this book and then go get that book. but now you can do a Google image search and find multiple pictures of every building you could ever think of and you know I can go on Wikipedia binges to learn more <laughs> and more about this or that aspect of architecture so it's just been an incredible wealth of information that i've you know that I've, that I've uh, had access to excellent, but I should say. Uh, at the same time that i developed this in intellectual philosophical interest in architecture i have always been very sensitive to my environment i mean like i said i even remember this brutalist library as a child but for a long time i you know had hated fluorescent lighting or certain buildings or couldn't stand certain aspects of design so for instance certain modern doors where you can't tell whether you push or pull. And, you know, it was that sensitivity to my environment, my interest in aesthetics in and of themselves combined with my philosophical interests that led me to develop a passion for architecture.
1: Well, that's terrific. I'll also share with our audience that um, Justin was appointed by President Trump to the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts for your term in the Commission of Fine Arts is an independent federal agency consisting of seven presidential appointees who are all the aesthetic guardians of Washington, D.C. I love the aesthetic guardians of Washington, D.C. I don't know if you've ever kind of uh, thought a bit about that, but that's a big responsibility, at least in my opinion, Justin.
3: Well, yeah, I, I, I take it very seriously. You know, I think many Americans... Take it for granted that washington dc is as grand and as magnificent as it is but it wasn't always the case hmm. um i mean you know of course there was the l'enfant plan for the city when george washington thomas and thomas jefferson consciously decided that the the city and its most important buildings were to be classical in design they were hearkening back to a republican rome and democratic athens but the mall itself and much of the city was really, or I should say, much of the core was undeveloped at the turn of the 19th century. And there was a commission, a Senate commission that was formed called the Senate that ended up being called the Macmillan Commission. And they came up with a plan to further and really complete the, the founder's vision for the city. And they created the National Mall as we know it. And around the same time, well, a couple of years later, that commission was in 19, you know, 1901, 1902, in 1910, Congress established the Commission of Fine Arts to steward the development of Washington, DC., and, as you said, to be the aesthetic guardian of it. So the way I see it, the commission, the original intent of the commission, really was meant to, you know, further the classical design of the city. And I take that, you know, take that to heart.
1: Yeah. Speaking of taking it to heart, I really appreciate your, uh, I would say, at least in my my, um, discovery, your 100 percent honest assessment of any and all, you know, the built environment, whatever comes your way or whatever you're asked to respond to. Has that been something that you really feel strongly about in architecture, or no? Is that kind of generally just your, uh, in your DNA, to be so frank and honest?
3: Well, I guess it is a personality trait that I've always been willing to speak my mind, even if I'm in the minority position. I don't mind people disagreeing with me or even people having very strong negative feelings toward me, so long as I feel like I'm in the right and I'm doing... Something important. I do think it's important to speak the truth, and particularly to speak to power. My views, which are you know anti-anti-modernist, anti-postmodernist you know, in architecture, are very much the minority in the field. And I think maybe I've been able to come to this point of view and been able to speak freely because I'm really not part of the profession. I'm not an architect. I don't teach at an architecture school. I'm just a layman with strong opinions that I hope are well-founded. And not having gone to architecture school, I was never indoctrinated into the ways of modernist architecture. I come at the field from a very different perspective. I think I've read many different, you know, various different things than many people in the profession have read. And this even includes some of the sociological studies of architecture, how architecture is tied up with social class and arbiters of taste and its relationship to power. So I'm bringing in other intellectual resources outside of the field and you know, sometimes you know people have said to me, well what gives you to, you know, the right to make decisions about what we should be building? Mm-hmm. And my response to that is Well, somebody has to decide. And so therefore, we have a right, the public has a right to weigh in on these matters rather than just having to sit there and accept whatever the architectural establishment uh, foists upon us.
1: Yeah. How would you, have you experienced or do you know individuals that have unlearned, the modernist sort of mindset and mantra that's pre- fr- that's prevalent I,
3: I i do one person who immediately comes to mind is architect james mccrary he's um one of the best ecclesiastical architects in the country in my view and he actually trained under peter Eisenman, the great deconstructivist architect and theorist but james later went to work for alan greenberg the great classical architect, um, who's also written about architecture, and you know, came to learn the classical tradition, and then is now today a classical architect. But you know, from my experience, such conversion experiences, and I do like to call them conversion experiences, since for many people their architectural worldview is, you know, a religion, or you might sure. say even more harshly, a cult. And to escape that cult, to escape the indoctrination you received in school, is very difficult. And I would like to see more of it, but it is very difficult, as I said.
1: What do you think, in your opinion or experience, is the fear in at least discovering the classic more uh, uh, in depthly? What do you think their fear is?
3: Well, I think, if I mean, well, right first, word. I mean, you have to go back to the you know early modernists who completely wanted to reject tradition wholesale and they did so in a very moralistic way whereby you know if you don't support modernism and support you know classical or traditional design then you're there's something bad about you you're not just you know bad architect but you know you're immoral or you're against progress or you're not you know creating the new kind of man that is necessary for contemporary technological society. And at the same time, you'll see a lot of these leading modernist architects deploring public taste in architecture. So their views of architecture are, in many cases, not just aesthetics, not just aesthetic preferences. And of course, the early modernists like to claim that what they were doing was not a style at all. Hmm. That somehow what they were doing was simply necessitated by materials and by the spirit of the age, by form, following, function, whatever that is supposed to mean, and that therefore they have reached a new era in the evolution of architecture. So, you know, many classicists today are accused of being reactionaries, of being you know, Republicans, of being all sorts of terrible things when I think if you you know, if you if you look at classical architects they are mostly motivated by a love of the classical tradition as opposed to trying to impose some kind of moral or political view on the world and thus i do think that it takes a lot of courage for architects who have been you know raised to be modernists to leave the fold because they will be accused of being a bad ultimately a bad person and can even be shunned by mm-hmm. their fellow architects
1: you notice there's a tremendous amount of unnecessary value judgment attached to it. Is that also your experience?
3: Well, yes. I mean, I'm not saying that architecture is value-free. Of course, it's heavily value-laden, and that is one of the things that draws me to it. But the idea that, you know, you're necessarily a bad person if you have if you prefer this or that architectural style, I think that's a pernicious Ideal. Now, that's not to say that there are some architects who I do think are pernicious, and these are those working in the deconstructivist tradition, um, at least those who are self conscious about it, you know, more on the theoretical side, who think and even claim that what they're doing is meant to undermine the very notion of architecture itself, Mm -hmm. to create chaos and disorder in the world, you know, essentially to make human beings lives worse as opposed to better i do think that there is something inherently wrong about that
1: justin are there any is there a probably several but if you have a favorite or a couple of favorite buildings that really inspire you and really speak to all the attributes and the um, uh, just that for well, lack of a better word just that sense of glory and wonder are buildings that you can share with us that that have that and embody that
3: two buildings that immediately come to mind are religious buildings one of them is st peter's in rome and the other one is the you know chapel of saint chapelle in paris and in both cases you get a sense of the sublime and the transcendent from architecture really just taking you to another place and it's just an extraordinary feeling and gives you you know, a sense of the good, the true, and the beautiful. You know, architecture does create a sense of order in the world Mm -hmm. and can reinforce certain, you know, metaphysical views. And I think you can get that from, you know, those two buildings to give really lofty examples. Um, You know, at the same time, on the more prosaic level, you know, I think a building like the Chrysler Building in New York is just very thrilling. It shows that you can combine... The classical tradition with modern technology, the modern world, Um, the way I see it, Art Deco is the last of the classical styles. And, you know, the the Chrysler building, it just screams Gotham. It's instantly recognizable. It's inspiring. I find it to be a great building.
1: Have you taken time, if you're even curious enough, to just, not just your own experience, but to measure or gauge or listen to the experience of people around you looking at those buildings. Are there any stories or instances where you you can kind of overhear what they're saying and they're they're feeling similar feelings?
3: Well, well, well well one thing I like to do is sit and observe people experiencing buildings. So, you know, you look at how people you know gather on the steps of the of the New York Public Library and some other great public spaces like that and how people take photographs and are just really excited and drawn to the buildings by contrast there are certain other buildings that might be held in high esteem by the architecture establishment but that ordinary people pass by without even thinking about it mm. and one building i think of is the Martin Luther King Library in downtown D.C., which is, uh, you know, Mies van building. It's, you know, it's black and steel, a couple stories high, somewhat reminiscent of the Seagram building. And I've never seen a single person stop and take a photograph of that building.
1: What's your thought on that? Well, it's because
3: it looks generic. It looks like corporate architecture. It is, you know, appears to be, yes, extremely functional, but nothing but functional. It's black, it's dark, it's reminiscent of something from a factory or from industry. There's nothing spiritual about it. Um, By contrast, across the street is the original U.S. Patent Office, which is designed in the Greek Doric style. I think it was by Robert Mills. and Boy, do people love that building. It's a beautiful classical building in Washington, D.C., And it's very much the sort of building that the the public likes. I am very interested in studies, empirical studies that show that the ordinary person prefers traditional and classical architecture to more modernist design. You know, the AIA did a poll circa 2007 asking the public, you know, for their favorite buildings. And of the top 50 buildings, I think only seven were non-traditional. And then the AIA got all defensive and said, well, you have to understand the way these things were designed. This is not architects weighing in. But the fact is, ordinary people prefer traditional design. Their materials are recognizable, shapes and forms that are recognizable. Those buildings have meaning and symbolism, whether conscious or not, um, that people respond to.
1: Excellent. This is the modern architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM.
2: The U.S. Commission of Fine Arts was established by Congress the 17th of May in 1910. It is an independent federal agency charged with giving expert advice to the President, the Congress, and the Federal and District of Columbia governments on matters of design and aesthetics, as they affect the federal interest and preserve the dignity of the nation's capital. The commission is composed of seven presidentially appointed experts in relevant disciplines, including art architecture, landscape architecture, and urban design. Through its unique work as the only federal commission dedicated to design, review, and aesthetic excellence, the Commission of Fine Arts serves the American people, international visitors, and those who live and work in the nation's capital, contributing to the beauty and dignity of this international symbol of American
1: democracy. We're talking today with Justin Shubo, president of the National Civic Art Society. For more information, you can visit cfa.gov and shubo.com. That's s h u b o dot Justin, you talked about, uh, we'll go to something that's a, a, a little ethereal, but love it if you can shine light on it and make it tangible. Spiritual. You said, that, you said that a couple of times about a building. Are they really, in essence for you, spiritual as well?
3: Well, before I answer that question, I just want to give the web address for the, the National Civic Art Society itself, Excellent. which is www.civicart.org. Yeah. So are buildings spiritual? I mean, a building in and of itself as just a material object, You know, I don't think it has spirit in it. It's not like it has a soul. But in terms of the effect that it has on us, yes, I do think if the the building is an extraordinary building, it, it does have a spiritual component. It can appeal to our sense of the transcendent, of make us think that there's a reality beyond the mundane, that life is not just about, you know, material objects and earning money and spending money, that... A house is not a machine for living, to refer to something that Le Corbusier famously said. And yes, great architecture can achieve that. Mm
1: -hmm. That's great that you've noticed that. The buildings themselves have a sense, whether someone acknowledges or not, there's a sense of um, peace or community involvement. Are there any other cities that you've... Experience that you really are buildings in other cities that you feel that are new, relatively new. When I say new, in that uh, you know they were a small city, say five, ten years ago, and now they're they're quite bustling with new population that are honoring the classical architecture.
3: Well, one city that immediately comes to mind is Poundbury in England. This was an entirely new town built. I think it's on the property owned by Prince Charles who as you may know is a strong supporter of traditional design and and environmentalism which I think can go hand in hand with it and that town is built in you know a v- vernacular style appropriate to its place and it's been very successful it's a pleasing place it's not a no place like so much of American suburban suburbia it's Built on traditional urbanist principles with, you know, perfectly pleasing vernacular architecture. I mean, that's actually that's not something that we've talked about yet. But yes, I mean, I've been emphasizing you know great and important buildings. But of course, most architecture in the world is not a cathedral. Yes. And when you're talking about just ordinary buildings, there used to be a great and there still is. But there there is this vernacular tradition. Going back to the past of how to build, you know, pleasing ordinary buildings that are not so expensive to build, you know, and what and one way that this used to be done was by using pattern books. But in the 20th century, the vernacular, you know, at least by you know, according to the architectural establishment, just had to end, and we had to institute a new architectural vocabulary, one that. Is invented. I mean, I like to talk about, you know, to to play on this idea of the vernacular, which is, you know, a word that comes from language. You know, there used to be vernacular language that, you know, has evolved over time, goes to the past. But then in the 20th century, you get invented languages. They're more like Esperanto or Klingon or C plus plus, and it's always very a, a problem for invented languages to have the, rich, the richness of a natural language, and so much of the vernacular has been you know, really pressed down, but a town like Poundbury um, has, has brought that back.
1: Any American towns that you're aware of, or any mayors that's, uh, or uh, leaders of states? Or
3: well, one you... place I've never been to, but you know, from what I can tell from the photographs, has done a good job, is Seaside, Florida, which is an, a new urbanist town done with, you know, very pleasing traditional architecture.
1: What's the reason, to, if you ever found out why, why they uh, valued?
3: Well, that was a planned, a planned town. You know, I don't know the, the full story there, but, you know, there's the, the Congress for New Urbanism, you know, has certain principles for what makes for good urban design. And then there was a partnership with traditional architects you know of course ultimately any development like that is is a business proposition sure. but they thought that there was a market for this and at the same time they did want to make you know something that's objectively good that's not just about maximizing profit
1: yeah on that uh, the, the subject of business proposition is there or have you um found or can direct us to a study that will show that classical architecture actually it is a better Business proposition for a community or a city or a state to design that that environment, leveraging classical architecture. I don't know if leveraging is the right word, but you know. How-
3: well, I mean, I can say that there are two buildings in New York by Bob Stern's firm that are you know, new, new traditional designs that sold out immediately, and which you know, which is in, indicative that at least there that there's a market for traditional design. Something that also comes to mind, there's a, a building, I'm not sure if it's completed yet, but in Chelsea, New York by Roman and Williams. And it's, you know, very stunning traditional building with green terracotta on on the exterior. And what's so interesting is that the marketing materials for that building from the developer, the slogan is bring beauty back. Oh, yeah. You know, they're actually using the word beauty, you know, heaven forbid, such a bourgeois old fashioned term that, you know, so many contemporary architects don't like to use but in their in their view people are willing to pay for beauty so that's why it's worth their investment.
1: Yeah, let's touch on the word beauty. That's one of my favorite words and a lot of things in, uh, at least in my personal life, I measure against or not against, with beauty. What, what is beauty to you in, in architecture if you, uh, at Liberty? To um, well,
3: what is beauty in architecture? That's That's a hard question,
1: or at least for you, You're, you know, it's your own your own opinion. Your world.
3: well, I mean, I think that there are certain universal standards of beauty that are built into human nature, which is why you can see certain buildings around the world from different civilizations and cultures and find them beautiful. You know, so for instance, the Taj Mahal. I did not grow up with Mughal architecture, but I think that it's a stunning, beautiful building and you know, maybe part of that is due to the left right symmetry, the fact that there are various levels of detail so that when you're, you know, half mile away you see a certain form, when you get closer you see more detail all the way down to, you know, the interiors where you get, you know, moldings and, and things like that. I think that human beings respond to certain kinds of patterns. Mm that work at different levels of complexity. You know, there's a book called The Art Instinct that gets into some of the scientific studies of, you know, the sorts of things that humans like in art, and there are more recent empirical studies of architecture on, I think some people call it cognitive architecture, looking at what people find beautiful. I do think that one thing that people find pleasing is buildings that resemble faces in a certain way. I mean, I'm not saying this makes for a great building, but when you look at a house, you know, you have, like, the way children draw a house, there are, you know, two windows like eyes and a door like a mouth. And human beings are hardwired to see and appreciate faces. And a vernacular house can, you know, is pleasing if it achieves that.
1: Excellent. Now, uh, I'm a strong advocate for, uh, in particular mayorships or leadership civic civic leaders to have i don't know if there's such actually there are a couple examples to have a a right hand person so to speak that is uh, an architect or has a an architectural bent or is an architectural critic or in a position like yourself to actually be at the forefront of the civic decision making for the for the city or or even county or even state. What's your thought on that? Is it maybe uh, you know too grandiose, not worth it?
3: Well, you know, that is the purpose of the National Civic Art Society. Mm. You know, we, we seek to promote classical and humanistic public art and architecture and in large part by advising our leaders on what we should be building. And so, yes, we would love there to be advisors across America though of course you know the the challenge is well who are those people going to be you know it, it used to be the case that you know leaders in society had a sense of what made for good architecture. They might have been raised or educated in such a way they might have gone on a grand tour of Europe and were more comfortable in making architectural decisions also they might have just had more, general education in the great sweep of Western history, and therefore how certain architectural forms reflect our history. And, you know, one one example I like to give about how people like, you know, how certain people used to be able to weigh in on architecture is the story of the Jefferson Memorial, Mm. you know, this magnificent Roman design, Roman-inspired design by John Russell Pope. It's important to remember that when that was built, it was or at first proposed, it was the 1930s. And according to the architectural establishment, this is the modern era, and we shouldn't be building classical buildings. The dean of Harvard School of Architecture, Joseph Hudnut, who was incredibly influential, he called the design an egg on a pantry shelf in the middle of a geometric Sahara. And numerous professors and others came out against the design for being outmoded. But FDR who had a strong sense of architecture, weighed in, and he said, are you kidding me? This is a classical design. Jefferson was a classical architect. Washington is a classical city, and it's magnificent. And he had the confidence to stand up for you know, his architectural judgment. And nowadays, I think we have many people um, in positions of power and influence who might have intuitions about what they like, or they know that they prefer one thing to another, but they're unable to articulate it. They don't have the vocabulary. And in an ideal world, there would be advisors who can explain why they do or do not like a building, so therefore we'll get a, you know, a more beautiful uh, built environment.
1: Yeah, I like that they're unable to articulate. I would expect the vast majority of uh, those in uh, civic leadership positions are unable to articulate that. So how are you helping other communities? I know you you obviously deliver a number of uh, speaking engagements, but how do you measure if you even try to measure that they have an understanding and at least are better able to articulate it?
3: Well, I mean, it's a challenge to, to educate people. Like, like you said, I and others give talks where, you know, I'll have a PowerPoint presentation with numerous photographs and, You just basically start having to, you know, teach architecture one hundred and one, not necessarily explaining the parts of a building, but giving a sense of the grand sweep of the history of architecture, and you know, arguably in my view, how things went wrong in the twentieth century. So, for instance, I mean, you don't have to be an architecture expert to know that, you know, what a factory looks like, and that given what a factory looks like, you might think. A public school should not look like a factory. And so therefore, if some architect is proposing a building that looks like a factory, when it's supposed to be a school, you can oppose that comfortably. And so yes, like I think there is a lot to be done in terms of education, and you know so much of it now, you know, is possible on the internet, thanks to you know, photographs. I've written a couple of articles. One of them I wrote online, published online was called, Architecture continues to implode. More professionals admit that the profession, you know, the profession is failing. That's not the exact title, but it was something. More insiders admit that the profession is failing. And I had many photographs in that article, and I like to draw all sorts of analogies to other art forms that people might have a greater sense of. But that article touched a nerve. It received 180,000 views. <sighs> And to me, that indicates that many people do think that something has gone wrong in architecture and that they are interested in learning more. You know, one thing I would love to see is a documentary made about architecture, you know, giving my particular view as opposed to, you know, the standard textbook, because nowadays all the textbooks are written by modernists, but to tell a different story about what happened in architecture and really to open people's eyes.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. The Natural Resources Defense Council is an environmental
2: action group that combines the grassroots power of more than 2 million members and online activists with the courtroom expertise of nearly 500 lawyers, scientists, and other professionals. The NRDC's staff works with businesses, town leaders, and community groups on issues such as global warming, clean energy, safe water, and endangered wildlife. To become a member or donate, visit
1: nrdc.org. We're talking today with Justin Schubo, president of the National Civic Art Society. For more information, you can visit cfa.gov. And Justin, in the other uh, URL?
3: Yes, uh, www.civicart.org.
1: Okay, thank you. Justin, if we go back into the, uh, touch on uh, the documentary TV show or series even about Architect 101. Share with uh, your audience how you think that may help them and uh, what would be really um, valuable about that.
3: Well, so, you know, when I think of 20th century architecture, you know, I would just like for, you know, such a movie to show how architecture, modernist architecture came about largely thanks to disillusionment in Europe after the devastation of World War One, You know, it was this idea that the world had fundamentally changed, that there was going to be a new kind of man and that mo- modern architecture needed to create that kind of man through their buildings. There was this idea of architecture's power to shape human beings. And really, you know, as part of this, I would like to talk about the numerous manifestos. You know, what did the architects actually say and believe and that how this informed what they came to design. So you know, there's a great book that I that I recommend to people called Architectural Manifestos of the 20th Century, which goes you know just lays out one after the other after the other, and they're they're pretty radical. Um, you know, one calls for the death of the soul, um, and then there are, of course people like Le Corbusier, you know, saying things like a house is a machine for living. That these are a particular kind of philosophy that I think. Ordinary people would find foreign, and then get into the, the the idea that so much of modernist architecture was a rejection of bourgeois taste, and uh, so then ultimately it became very culturally elitist, and then interestingly lost its political um, so much of its political intent, and then just became corporate, where you know the international style became the style of. Of the Seagram Corporation, and then spread around the world. That does make me also, you know, remember how important it is for people to understand that so much of modernist and contemporary architecture rejects the very notion of national or regional architecture. Like, why is it that buildings came to look the same around the world? Well, that's because it was an, it was intentionally the case that you know national identity no longer mattered in terms of design. So yes, I would you know like to show all sorts of different photographs of the history of architecture, but really talk about the underlying ideas and also draw certain analogies. So for instance, in music, in early modernist, in, in 20th century modernist music, you likewise get an invented language, you know, 12-tone serialism, and you get atonal music, music that has completely rejected the past, and very interestingly, um, there was a building at one of the World Expos by Le Corbusier that played music by one of these modernist composers. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to the music, which is all very screechy and electronic. And to me, well, maybe that gives people a sense of this is the same kind of idea about buildings that have completely rejected the past and maybe even have rejected beauty as such. Now, modernism and music of that sort was largely a failure, Because concert audiences are simply not willing to sit in an auditorium for an hour and listen listen to atonal music. Mm -hmm. But in the world of architecture, people have no choice. They're forced to, you know, see these buildings, experience them and use them, which is one reason I think that modernism hasn't died out the way it has in, for instance, music.
1: Yeah. What's your thought on why? the vast majority of buildings that are completed by architects do not recognize the architect. Federal, I think, more, much more so. But on a, in, on a state and a civic and a even a personal or private level, the names of an art, the architect and the builder are not recognized anywhere on the building unless you go to the city and find out who did it. And I've likened it to imagine a book without the author's name these wonderful books and you just you don't know who wrote them but (laughs) they're great what's your thought on that if you've even thought of that
3: well that's an interesting question since i think there is a difference between architecture and art or there ought to be in that architecture should not be about the architect it's not a form of self-expression and in contrast, yes, you paint a painting, you put your name on it, people, you know, have your, it has your signature on it, people know it's by you. But it's less important to me that people know, you know who, who particularly designed a building. I'm not saying at the same time that architects shouldn't get respect. I mean, great architects should be lauded. They're very important people in society. And sure, there's nothing, I don't have a problem with there being you know a, a plaque on the building or some kind of um, sign on the building saying who, who designed the building. But I want to make I want to avoid a situation where architecture is about the architect. And you see in so much so-called architecture buildings that are signature buildings that you know that people immediately know who designed them from looking at, the building, you know, Frank Gehry has a particular style, and so on. That those kind of architects are confusing art and architecture. That architecture should not be a form of of, of branding.
1: Mm-hmm. You spoke earlier about the uh, Architect One Hundred and One. How is the uh, National Civic Art Society reaching out to school-age children about architecture? Is there a, a formal program or?
3: Well, I and others that we are associated with have given talks to college students. And you know and in one occasion, I gave a talk to certain high school students. You know, when I, when I give talks like this, I like to use a lot of examples from movies to show how directors choose certain buildings over others to make a certain point. So, for instance... In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris lives in a cozy colonial. By contrast, his neurotic friend, whose name is escaping me, the one who ultimately goes into a a catatonic stare and doesn't want to have fun, he lives in an international-style house. Uh Now, why did John Hughes make those decisions? Well, because I think, in his view, people have certain kind of emotional responses to different kinds of architecture, um, or you look at Stanley Kubrick's a Clockwork Orange, this dy- dystopian vision of the future, which was filmed at a brutalist housing project in England. And so when I give talks to you know students, I do like to appeal to things that they might already have seen but have never really thought about. And uh, it's, it's a way of you know starting to talk about architecture even if you don't know anything about it.
1: Yeah, how about the behavioral changes in uh, uh, buildings of classical architecture? Have you can you reference any studies or discoveries where they've uh, ascertained what you just well, shared about the movies?
3: I mean, you know, there have been interesting studies about if pedestrians are walking by ability with a completely flat, featureless facade, okay. people walk faster than when there are windows and articulation when the building in other words is much friendlier to the public and so that suggests that architecture really does shape people's behavior also i think you can look at which buildings are more likely to be vandalized than others you know which is more likely to be spray painted you know a brutalist building that's mm-hmm. off-putting or one that is more in the traditional and vernacular
1: yeah, that's interesting. In the in, in fact, there was a uh, a city out here in the Bay Area. I can't recall which city or cities that actually put a statue a statue of uh, a Buddha, a, l- a large statue, and they found that the crime in and around that Buddha significantly dropped just having that statue.
2: Interesting. Although
1: uh, you know, yeah, uh, I don't think it's a, you know a Buddhist community at all. I don't think either of them were. But it's interesting that how it affected the people. And uh, yeah. Well, ultimately, that's uh, you know, what you're working with. How about landscape, the landscape in and around a classical architecture buildings? What's your, your uh, take on uh, what type of landscapes, types of trees? What, what, what helps with the space between the buildings, in your opinion?
3: Well, that's harder for me to, to discuss. Honestly, landscape architecture is not something that I know that, that much about. I mean, certainly, I know I can think of gardens that are, okay, are incredibly perfect. effective. I mean, well, one that immediately comes to mind is or I mean, maybe even beyond the garden of, of a garden of a public space is the National Mall in Washington D.C., which is just a you know a perfect setting for the Capitol, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, and at the same time, there's there's all these shade trees on the sides of of the Mall. You know, the landscape architecture, it would it would just really depend on what what we were talking about.
1: Yeah. Is there ever instances where you've been received, at least personally, face-to-face, where it could, was almost contentious just because of your candor about the, the, the value of this? Oh, landscape?
3: sure. Well, <laughs> so I was a very vociferous opponent to Frank Gehry's proposal for the National Eisenhower Memorial, which is being built here in D.C., just off the National Mall, And on more than one occasion, I actually delivered testimony at the Commission of Fine Arts. This was before I was a commissioner. And there was definitely some pushback by commissioners, um, you know, given given my my criticisms. You know, it depended on the meeting. At times, they might implicitly accept some of the things I was saying. But other times, the very idea that, you know— I had the temerity to criticize one of the world's, you know, great architects or who is widely believed to be one of the world's great architects. You know, that's just not something that you see very often.
1: <laughs> yeah. And speaking of that, what's the culture like if the national, uh, the civic art society, you know, obviously you, you have support and you have people that you work with. What is the culture if you can, if, if there's a description of it or maybe even some shared experiences.
3: I'm sorry, do you mean at the Fine Arts Commission or the National mm-hmm. Civic Arts Society?
1: National Arts Society, excuse me.
3: Well, I mean, I, we, we feel like we're a band of brothers. Okay. That, you know, we're this, you know, we, we are the, the counterculture in architecture. <laughs> and we, we like being in that position because, well, of course, we believe we're right or else we wouldn't be doing this. But it's, it's fun to take on the establishment you know the you know all the schools and all the the big time professors and the big time architects who you know build the world in which we're in and you know here we are trying to stand up to them and and say you know what the public and our leaders we're not we're not going to take this any longer something has gone wrong in architecture and it needs to stop
1: yeah have you noticed say within the last I will just make it you know, 3 years a change in the behavior of those uh, who who oppose you or oppose it
3: no i i, I, <laughs> really? I, wouldn't, no. I wouldn't i wouldn't say so i mean you know it, it's very <laughs> funny that when you when you you hear architects say that what they're building is expressive of the time or it follows the spirit of the time they are picking and choosing what spirit they want to reflect mm mm-hmm. mhm so, for instance, you know there are plenty of observers who will claim that there's a wave of populism in America right now. But you don't hear contemporary architects saying, oh, populism is on the rise, therefore we need to be designing buildings to reflect that. Well, because the architects don't necessarily like populism, and that's why they, that's not the spirit that they, they want to build in.
1: Yeah, how do you affect change other than just education? In your uh, your experience and opinion,
3: well, you know, we have testified before Congress. We have reached out to people in the executive branch. Right now, in New York, we are leading a campaign um, attempting to rebuild the original Penn Station in New York. Hmm. Um, this 1910 Beaux Arts design that was demolished in 1963. And as part of that, we have a public affairs campaign, and that has been extremely well-received, where we have many Facebook followers and so on. And so there, there's an actual, you know, something that we're trying to build. Um, We're not just trying to educate.
1: I like that. Now, keynotes, you've done a number of keynotes. Are those, you search them out, they come to you, kind of both? to where you have an opportunity to be a keynote. They,
3: I mean, I think in all these cases, I, I was invited to speak.
1: Okay. In all cases? Oh, at least it's...
3: All that I All that yeah. I can think of, yes.
1: Yeah. The Institute. Now, go back to the beginning, if you will, is to the design sensibilities. So have you met people who obviously are not architects who have, in your opinion, even greater design sensibility than some recognized architects?
3: Well, it depends what you mean by design sensibility. You know, they might not be sophisticated, okay, but they might have better sense. You know, it's sort of like the little boy oh, in the emperor's goodness. new clothes. That boy knows that the emperor is naked. <laughs> it might not be the case that he can design a, you know, terrific gown. Mm-hmm. And so, thus, like, the ordinary person might have more sense, but no, I mean, they don't have the kind of knowledge that architects have.
1: Yeah. We'll go back to the youth again. What is your thought on going back uh, even earlier than high school to the youth to have them have at least an understanding, okay, if not understanding, an awareness of classical architecture? What are your thoughts on that?
3: Oh, I, I think that's very important. I mean, one thing I like to achieve through my talks is even if, whether or not people agree with me, I want people to see that architecture is important, to not just go through the world without thinking about what you see. I mean, it's true that architecture affects us whether or not we're thinking about it. And, you know, that's really important when it comes to our perceptions of gravity and math and why huge cantilevers can cause us to feel anxiety, whether or not we're thinking about the cantilever. But yes, I mean, for, for children to think about buildings, why they might like some over others, you know, get them while they're young. <laughs> and then maybe we'll get a... You know a, a new generation because, you know, as I was saying, architecture schools, in my view, are indoctrination camps, and and you can look at how the crits are done, how what is taught, what is not taught, I mean, classical architecture is essentially not even taught in architecture schools. It's not like, well, there is this alternative tradition, but you know, okay, now let's go back to you know what we were doing. It's simply not taught. It's it's forbidden, and if there's a new generation. Of you know people going into architecture schools who who are who are coming in with fresh eyes. Though admittedly, most architecture students do come in without you know too many preconceived notions. Well, then that could provide hope for the future. Excellent. I mean, there was a study by the Carnegie Fund of architecture schools that found that architecture students throughout their education did um, start preferring more and more. Avant-garde designs, but that's not how they—that's not how they felt when they came into the school.
1: Mm. Huh. When was this conducted? Do you recall?
3: I don't—I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. But there was also a very interesting study that found that architects. I mean, this is not totally unsurprising. Architects perceive buildings or evaluate buildings in very different ways than ordinary people do. Right. Of course, Mm -hmm. if you've been trained to think about buildings in a particular way, you know if you think about buildings as about about space as opposed to about facades, which is I think is um, a basic difference between how people, ordinary people, view buildings from architects. Well, the architects are just going to evaluate buildings differently. But what gets really interesting in that study is not only do they show that architects and the ordinary person um, in, in evaluate buildings differently, but architects are not even able to predict how other people will evaluate the building. That's how far that's how far their minds have been moved away from normal people is that they can't even empathize with other people.
1: Wow, this is the modern architect on KZSU, ninety point one FM, Stanford. Comprehensive information on Bay Area classical
2: music concerts can be found at San Francisco Classical Voice website sfcv.org. For daily, weekly or monthly information on classical music concerts throughout the Bay
1: Area, simply visit sfcv.org. We're talking today with Justin Shubo, president of the National Civic Art Society. For more information, you can visit cfa.gov, and Justin, please share again the URL.
3: Sure, www.civicart.org. Excellent. Can I go back to one thing Absolutely. that we were talking about? Absolutely, certainly. You know, you asked me that very difficult question, well, you know, what is architectural beauty? Well, maybe it's very hard to describe, but what is so interesting is is that you'll find many modern architects who will just simply say that beauty doesn't matter. You know, beauty is not a term you hear very much anymore, they might agree that a building is more or less beautiful than others, but that is not the criterion that matters. I mean, Philip Johnson said about Boston's uh, brutalist city hall, it's so ugly. I love it. Ugh. So in other words, you know, he, he knew that the building was, was ugly, but that was not something that weighed against it in his mind.
1: Wow. I, I was th- thrown back by that. That beauty does not matter because it's uh Perhaps it's just harder to understand and feel and sense now in 2019 than, uh, than in times past. I don't know what it is. In fact, I'm not even sure what I'm saying right now because I'm still struck by that. Beauty does not matter because it really matters everything to me. And if you don't mind, we'll segue back to the youth is I believe there may be an opportunity with the youth to have them again, have at least an awareness. And I don't know if, uh, if it's possible to enact any sort of policy where it's, I don't want to browbeat them and say it's required, but is there some action or action step that can be taken to have the youth be aware or a formal program, just like you would have art?
3: I mean, I should think so. There are all sorts of other requirements in other, other areas of study. I mean, one thing also that could be done for youth to help militate against what happens in architecture schools is to teach people how to draw. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think many many people outside of the architecture world are not aware that architecture students are not taught to draw anymore. And the long tradition of art, arch- in the long tradition of architecture, you would study other buildings, you would actually see them in person, and you would draw them. You could also simply hand draw your own works and. That skill of drawing completely affects the kind of building a person designs. Nowadays, you're getting you know, what's been called spreadsheet architecture. Everything's done on the computer. You design one floor, and then you copy it 20 times, and then you're done. <laughs> or even worse, you'll get things like parametricism, where you put a, you know, a function into the computer, and then you have the computer design the building, and you get you know, blob of texture and very strange shapes. But if children are taught to draw and to look at their environment and to draw a building, it will completely shape how they interpret architecture.
1: Super. Justin, is there anything that we may not have touched on that you'd like to touch on in our show before we commence? Oof, that's a hard question. I'm glad to hear that because it's well, been well, pretty heavy. Well, I
3: would also, you know, I think there is this like, interesting question of the spirit of the times. Like what is the spirit of the times? Is architecture should art architecture be applied sociology? That somehow architects have this special understanding of the nature of society and therefore they should design accordingly. And at the same time, what if the spirit of the times is bad? So maybe you could say that, you know, certain brutalist buildings in Soviet Europe were expressive of the Soviet mm. Union. Mm-hmm. But Maybe that's not what should have been built at the time, because the spirit was a bad one.
1: Yeah, well said, well said. Go ahead, Charlotte, please. Charlotte, uh, has a... I
2: want to interject something that your guest will un- immediately respond about. Well, we can go back and discover literally how Western civilization was taken out of college curriculum, so it's no longer even an option to take Western Civ. At Stanford University, for example, and then, you know, you counter that with uh, Stanford's always took Leland Jr. on grand tours of Europe to teach him about the great architecture. And it's the reason why uh, Stanford is built as it is, because that was uh, the architecture itself is part of the educative process. And the only building that was here before the school was built was the museum building, and then it, it has all the disciplines that are to be studied in mosaic across the top of the building. So, at any rate, I think part of the issue and the problem that we're even talking about here is just the lack of even appreciation or regard for the history of Western civilization.
3: I think that's an excellent way of putting it. I mean, I mentioned that I went to Columbia for college. Well, Columbia is a, is a rare school that still has a core curriculum.
0: You know, wow. every
3: Every freshman begins by reading uh, the Iliad, you know, going back to ancient Greece, and then you move on from there, and then later you do Plato and Aristotle, and then you get into the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and then, you know, of course, you come up to the modern period. And when you have an understanding of the grand sweep of our civilization, you'll have a greater understanding of, you know, the history of our architecture and why we might build in a particular way. Now, I should say, you know, when I'm talking about classical architecture, I've been talking about it in, you know, the way re- referring to Greek and Roman architecture. Though, of course, there's classical architecture in civilizations around the world, and I encourage people in those civilizations to build according to their history as well. It's the modernists who don't want people building Indian or classical architecture or Chinese classical architecture but rather want to institute their architectural ideology all over the world.
1: Excellent. So it comes back
2: to international versus nationalism.
3: Or even, to use a more loaded term nowadays, globalism.
1: There you have um, it. Yeah. You know. Justin, it's been an honor having you as our guest. Thank you very much.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Excellent. You've been listening to the Modern Architect Radio Show and Podcast. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Justin Chubot, president of the National Civic Art Society, a nonprofit organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. that advances the classical tradition in public art and architecture. Justin was appointed by President Trump to the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts for a four-year term. The Commission of Fine Arts is an independent federal agency consisting of seven presidential appointees who are the aesthetic guardians of Washington, D.C. For more information, you're free to visit CFA.gov. And Justin, please share with me the URL again
3: www.civicart.org.
1: Thank you. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern
2: Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an s at kzsu.stanford.edu.
0: Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.